Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name, uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Aaron. I'm one of our uh, community group leaders here at Refuge and longtime member uh, at the church. Uh, I am really thankful to be here to, speak, uh, to share the word with you today. The elders have asked me to uh, step in uh, this morning. So uh, as, we, as you know, if you've been here for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah. And so as we continue to explore this, this book together in this time of, of reset at Refuge, we've been reminded time and again just how practical, helpful, and spiritually significant this book is as we've seen how Nehemiah has faced all kinds of crises. And as we get to chapter 5 today, uh, we're going to see another kind of crisis show up in the, in the community of God's people, one where the, the harmony and health of that community truly does hang in the balance as Nehemiah confronts a serious injustice. And as we study this chapter together, here is what I want us to see, that first, that injustice really exists. And as God's people, we need to recognize it for what it is, to confront it with the truth, and to correct it in word and in deed. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump right into this. So Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that it is profitable and helpful for us every time we come to it. God, I pray that you would help us to, to understand this text more clearly in our time together, to see its practical significance for us today, and to uh, glory in the gospel because of it. And God, we pray for, uh, for, for Dustin as well, who cannot be here this morning, um, who uh, we pray that you would continue to uh, help him to recover and uh, that he will be able to continue in his ministry here at Refuge effectively um, uh, as, he, as you heal his body and work through doctors and through your miraculous intervention. Help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, well, so the first thing that we need, to, we need to do as we look at this text is we need to recognize injustice for what it is. And so we see that really clearly as we get into verses 1 to 5 of this chapter, which, which read, There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, We, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so we can eat and live. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are, being, we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our sons and daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So in verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah 5, we see that the, the Jewish community, were, they were in a really tense situation. The work of rebuilding the wall was intense enough to begin with, but now they were building it with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. That's something that we talked about last, uh, just the other week. Um, and it was all, this all-consuming emphasis for the community. But... 
naturally, that's going to, because it is all-consuming, it's going to create tension. And what happens when tension goes unreleased for too long? Well, as stress increases, the strain shows. And if it goes on too long, eventually things begin to break. And that's what we're seeing here in, in this passage. Because the people were working almost exclusively on the wall, the rest of the work of life was being neglected. Some commentators suggest that this event was happening near, near the harvest time, which meant that there were, there were crops that would soon need to be harvested, which also meant that there were loans and taxes that were coming due. But more seriously, verses 3 and 4 suggest that the poorest in the community were the ones who were being taken the greatest advantage of. They were mortgaging all that they had, their fields, their vineyards, their homes, just to get grain to eat. They had to borrow money to pay, tax, pay the taxes on those fields that they were mortgaging. They were having to use their children as collateral placing them into debt slavery until that debt was paid. This is a community in crisis. And as we'll see shortly, it was the Jews' own countrymen who were contributing to that crisis. This is troubling for many reasons, not the least of which being that there is a conflict between the practice that we see described in this outcry and the Mosaic law, specifically in its call to treat one another as brothers and sisters first, and not as, as business prospects. Not as an opportunity to gain wealth from each other, but as family. The people of God are a family, first and foremost. A family to be loved and not to be exploited for personal gain. And so they were not simply experiencing the tension of a seemingly impossible task. They were being treated unjustly while they were doing it. So there's an organizational leader I, I know who once described people as rubber bands. When you pull a rubber band, you're adding tension or stress to it. And the more you increase the tension, the greater the distance the rubber band stretches and the more that you can find that it can, that it can handle, that it can cover. Um, but what happens when the tension on a rubber band becomes too great? It snaps. And the same is true for people as well. Everyone has a breaking point when it comes to stress and tension. And that's something that we need to recognize and be sensitive to today as well. Not just as we think about where we've been over the last 19 plus months of this pandemic, but well before then. We've all experienced different degrees of tension and stress recently, but for some that tension coupled with other forms of unjust treatment goes back generations. It's right, for example, to point to the experiences of members of the African American community and the First Nations and, Af and Native American communities as well. Um, frustration and anger that is rooted in unjust treatment that goes back centuries. And we would be unwise to ignore or dismiss the anger that comes from members of those communities at the injustices that they've experienced. We would be wise to hear those things. And it's also right to point to the all too frequent instances of physical, psychological, spiritual, and sexual abuse that occur within families and sadly in churches as well. 
and tragically, ones that have been all too often ignored, explained away, or otherwise diminished. And before we go any further, just, just know two things. First, if, if you have experienced any of those things, I, I'm truly sorry. And I understand what you're going through. I understand what you've experienced. Second, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad all of you are here, but if you've experienced any, any of these things that I've described, I'm really glad that you are here because we want this church to be a safe place for you, for all who are weary and heavy laden, for all who have experienced the, these sorts of things. And if you have been a victim of this particularly, these particularly grievous sorts of injustices, come and talk to one of the elders. We want to help. We want to do what we can. But these are not the only forms of injustice that exist in the world today, nor are they even the sort that are primarily in the view of our text this morning. The context of this passage describes injustice tied to economics. And we need to be aware of the ongoing presence of such injustices today, right now, in the communities where God has placed us. We need to be aware that there are, in fact, entire industries designed to prey on the most economically disadvantaged. Like, for example, the thriving payday loan industry, which, by the way, there, I did a quick check. Did you know that there are no less than 20 different payday loan businesses within 20 miles of Winstead Elementary School? And all of them are happy to loan a person $500 as long as they can pay back $575. These businesses, they're not illegal. But the way that they're structured, it's hard to see them as anything but unjust because they help perpetuate a cycle of poverty that lasts generations. And while I could go with more examples than just that, the point is this. Injustice is real, and it takes many forms in this world. It exists right now, even in ways that we may not perceive or realize. But as long as, and as long as sin remains, the default mode of the human heart, it always will exist. But that doesn't mean that we, as God's people, should be resigned to its existence. And as we're confronted with examples of injustice, we don't want to become numb or deaf to the cries of those who are experiencing it. We need to seek God's help to remain sensitive and compassionate, to be wise and humble as we hear of the situations that perhaps we have ignored or unintentionally even been complicit in. We need to recognize injustice for what it is, and we can only do that in God's power and with his help. But that's not all we need to do. We need to recognize injustice for what it is, and then we need to confront injustice with the truth. And this is what we begin to see in verse 6 of chapter 5. So listen to just this verse. He says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. So 
Confronting injustice with the truth begins with an emotional response. And a right emotional response to injustice is anger. And Nehemiah wasn't just angry. He was extremely angry. But this is important. He was extremely angry, but he didn't let his anger determine his response. Instead, we see in verse 7 that he seriously considered the matter. So Nehemiah was angry, but in his anger, he did not sin. And that's a principle that we considered back in chapter 4 just a couple of weeks ago as we, as we explored the discouragement that the people faced as Sanballat, Tobiah, and their crew sought to halt the work of rebuilding the wall. And this is important for us as well. As we seek to confront injustice, the injustices that God puts in our view, that he makes us aware of, we need to be wise in how we respond. Sin cannot go unaddressed, but when we are, t- when we are confronted with an injustice, we want to make sure that we have our facts straight, that we understand the situation properly, or as best as we can, lest our response be as equally inappropriate as the offense. So Nehemiah was angry, and he knew how fragile the unity of the people was, how easy it is for harmony among the people to break down, and he knew that he had to do something to protect the community. So, after he considered the matter, he took action, and he did it by accusing the nobles and the officials. And he said, continuing in, verses, in verse 7, each of you is charging his, country, his countrymen interest. And so I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, and now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. Nehemiah makes a strong accusation, accusing the wealthy among the people of behaving in a transactional matter. That, that, relationship, that the relationship between themselves and these, these poorer members of the community was a strict business relationship. You know, that, you know that phrase, it's not personal, it's just business? This was basically how they were living their, their lives. And, and as though that freed them from the constraints of showing compassion and concern for their brothers and sisters. They were lending to the poor in such a way that was legally right, under, certainly under, under Persian law, um, and also even under the law to some degree, because Deuteronomy 23.19 does allow the requiring of a material pledge against a loan, but they were also doing it in a way that was morally wrong. They were like a payday loan shop. They were helping the poor, but they were exacting a heavy fee for it. They were taking everything they had. And if that wasn't enough, these rich landowners were selling their own people into indentured servitude to foreigners. And some of these people that were being sold into into debt slavery were the same people who had previously been bought out of this sort of slavery before. And what was their response? What What did the nobles do in amongst this great assembly? 
In verse 8 it says, They remained silent and could not say a word. Now, don't misunderstand this statement, please. The language that's here is important. It wasn't that they chose to say nothing. This was not the rich stealing themselves in preparation to justify themselves, to explain why they were right to do what they were doing. They were silent because they could be nothing but silent. They were silent because when the weight of conviction fell, they could only be stunned by it. And so it's helpful for us to remember that when we confront injustice, silence does not necessarily mean resistance. It may simply mean that God is at work, that his spirit is bringing conviction to the offender and preparing them for what is next to come. And we see that starting in verse 9, where Nehemiah says, What you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? And so when we confront injustice with the truth, we need to make sure that the stakes are appropriately clear. And that's what we see, that's what, we, that's what, we, what the silence of the nobles provides Nehemiah with an opening to do, to make the moral reprehensibility of their actions unquestionably clear. The thing you're doing is not good. It's not right, he said. Or more strongly, it's wrong. It's wicked. It's evil. So rather than to continuing to do what's wrong, he says, here's what you should do that is right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Isn't this the thing isn't this thing that you're doing so reprehensible, he says, that these actions are so vile that your enemies find them offensive? And not only that, but they are the deeds of someone who has no fear of God. That, friends, that is the foundation of Nehemiah's rebuke. It's not societal norms. It's not cultural or political correctness. His rebuke is rooted in the fear of God. And the fear of God means to uphold God as being holy and perfect, to have a reverential awe that, honestly, fear is the right word for, is the best way to describe it. Because his ways and his being are just and right and true in every respect. Now, all sin, all sin, from the, from the greatest to the smallest, is based in an obstinate resistance to the righteous rule of God in this world. It is the result of people doing what is right in their own eyes. People having no fear of God. And this resistance ultimately needs to be confronted with the gospel. And in fact, that's what God has done sending Jesus into the world, rebuking humanity's rejection of its creator through his life, death, and resurrection, a death that was sac a sacrifice rooted in a true and perfect fear of God. So let me ask you something. 
Do you have this sort of healthy, holy, reverential fear of God? In a short while, we're going to be celebrating communion where we remember the death of Jesus, his body broken and blood shed for us, the greatest human injustice ever committed so that God's justice could be upheld. And when we do, I would encourage you to take some time before you come to the table, before you get your, your handy-dandy pre-made, uh, pre-packaged wafer and, and juice cup to consider this. And when you have, if you're a follower of Jesus, go take from the table, take these elements and do so gladly. But if you don't know Jesus, if you've got questions, let's talk about that. Whether it's me, whether it's one of our elders, whether it's the person that you're sitting next to, all of us are here to help you. All of us want to talk to you about this. Now, Let's continue on with verse 10, because in verse 10, Nehemiah does something that is disarming to the other nobles and honestly shocking to us when we read it. He includes himself as one who is guilty of these injustices that he's calling out. Listen to verse 10. He says, even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Remember that in verse 7, Nehemiah carefully considered the matter. That means that as he considered the situation, he also considered his own actions in this crisis. Where had he failed to live up to God's standard? Where was he guilt, as guilty as everyone else? And that leads us to, our, to another point of what we need to understand when we, can, when we seek to confront injustice with the truth. That to do so requires a degree of self-awareness. This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, when he condemned hypocritical judgment. We should be aware of our own sin. We should be aware of how we might even be complicit in certain sins. And if there's ever a place where we need God to do what only he can do, it's here. We need the Holy Spirit to break through the blinders of a lifetime of sin, the blinders that our sin place on us. We need him to help us to be aware of where we are missing the mark or where we are as equally guilty of the same errors that we would rightly condemn. We need to own those things for ourselves, even as we condemn them in the world around us. And Nehemiah, from his self-awareness, from his inclusion of himself in the need to repent of taking advantage of others, he issues a strong challenge in the rest of verses 10 and 11. This is what he says. He says, please, let's stop charging this interest. Return their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. Nehemiah wants this unjust activity to cease. And he shows us the way forward in this as well. He reminds us that confronting injustice with the truth requires a call for change. He doesn't just say, stop it. He says, this is what we need to do instead. He appeals to them as one of their own. Let's stop charging this interest, he says, inclusively as one of them. But then he goes a step further, commanding that everything that has been taken, 
all their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their homes, everything, along with all the interests that they've been charged. He was calling the rich to sacrifice for the well-being of the community as a whole, to put, their, put the needs of others and the harmony of the community of faith ahead of their own comfort and affluence and interests. That's a challenging word for all of us, isn't it? Confronting injustice the way that Nehemiah did would have absolutely been uncomfortable. It was a risky decision, but the risk was worth it. Confronting injustice is always worth the risk, and that risk is something that we always need to be willing to take on. So consider your own situations. Is there a place where God might be calling you to confront an injustice with the truth, to call someone to repentance, to do so boldly and humbly? In verse 12, Nehemiah records that the nobles heard. They responded, saying that we will do these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. That's really good news. That's, that's God at work. When people see, when people hear, when people respond, they can't they, they change. They recognize their responsibility to the community as a whole. And then Nehemiah did something else. He pressed deeper with them. They made a promise that they would, that they would do right by the people, but he takes their promise and has them pledge an oath. And basically, he understands that, he does this basically because he understands that a promise made in an emotional moment isn't guaranteed to be followed through upon. And so he wanted some more teeth to this. And so in verse 13 we read, I also shook the folds of my robes and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who does not keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. And the whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord, and then the people did as they promised. And so what Nehemiah has done here in shaking his robe is to effectively invoke a curse. And Marvin uh, Brenneman, uh, commentator, put it this way, that the shaking of the folds of his robe was a symbolic act to announce effectively the curse upon those who disobeyed, that God would take away their houses and possessions. So... Essentially, Nehemiah was saying, if we don't do this, may God take everything of ours. If they didn't obey, they would lose all they had. And that would be God's just judgment upon them. And this is the same kind of language that we actually see later in the New Testament when, when Jesus sent out the twelve to proclaim the coming of the kingdom and to preach repentance in Mark 6, 7 through 13. In those towns where they were not welcome, they were to shake off the dust of their feet as a testimony against them, as a warning of judgment. But again, here's the good news. The people, the whole assembly, they took this oath. They agreed that they should be judged if they did not follow through. And in a wondrous act of God, we see this good news that they did as they promised and as they praised the Lord. 
And that's what we want to see when we confront injustice with the truth, that we want to see transformation happen. That, and that's what repentance looks like. It's not just being sorry for what they've done or what we've done. It's being motivated by God in His power and with His help to pursue justice. And so we recognize injustice for what it is. We confront injustice with the truth. And then we do one last thing. We correct injustice in word, but we also do it in deed. And that's what we see in verses 14 through 19, which read this. Furthermore, from the, from the day King Artaxerxes put, appointed me to be their governor in the land, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, so 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of, the, of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nation at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, favorably my God, for all that I have done for this people. Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot about these verses in part because several commentators actually wisely state that they are in many ways a punctuation point on what we've already discussed. But in these verses, we are reminded of that final principle that I mentioned, that we are to correct injustice both in word and deed. So in the preceding verses, we saw how Nehemiah talked a good game, how he confronted injustice with the truth. And here we're being reminded that he wasn't just talk. He led by example. He did not walk in the ways of his predecessors, placing the same burdens upon them that previous governors had. He didn't even take what was rightfully his as governor. He showed the people a better way, a way motivated by his love for God, his fear of the Lord, a desire to be blameless among the people. And when it comes to how we respond to injustice, that's what we want for you as individuals and all of us as a church, that we don't want to be the sort of people who recognize injustice and do nothing about it. We don't want to be the sort of people that James condemns who see a brother or sister without clothing or food and says, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed in, in verses, chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 of his book. We want to be the sort of people that put boots on the ground, that, re that respond in both word and in deed. So friends, let's consider this. Where is Jesus calling us to respond to a need practically today? Where is there a need that needs to be addressed that we may not be aware of? And again, if you, are if you are in a difficult situation, if you are in a serious issue and struggling, talk to one of the elders so that, you can, so that we can get you the help that you need. And also, where is there an opportunity for us to work 
together to correct, to confront and con- correct an injustice in God's way, in his power, and for his glory. Let's pray about those things as we prepare to take communion. Let's talk about these things together in our community groups. Let's ask God to guide us, to help us to see what we need to see and empower us to take real action today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the helpful example, once again, of Nehemiah in in dealing with a tense situation of confronting injustice in a meaningful and practical and God-glorifying way. Help us as a church to walk in the same fear of the Lord that he did, to put, put our concern for you above all else, to recognize injustice where we see it, to confront it with the truth, and to correct it in both our words and our deeds. Help us to do these things in your ways, in, with your power, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.